I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to The Bip Show. I'm Paul Colgan. Uh, We're recording this episode on the 18th of June, 2020. Uh, here in Sydney, where I am with James Whelan, Investment Manager and Macro Strategist at BSFS Group. How are you, James? Well, great to be here again, Paul. Thank you for joining us. Another ripping show ahead. I reckon so. Uh, also on the line, joining us from Amsterdam, Ken Vexler, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Acumen Management. Uh, uh, Ken, how are you going today, mate? Well, well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, and how's things? Uh, things are good, going to get more uh, fun and interesting, I think, uh, over the course of the next 45 minutes or so. Our guest um, has a bachelor's degree in law, ethics and economics from Yale. Um, she has a PhD in economics from the University of Maryland. Her economic research work spans education, social influence, corruption, behavioral economics and Australian policy. Uh, she was named Young Economist of the Year last year by the Economic Society of Australia, and she also has a podcast called The Economist, which she does on ABC Radio. Uh, it's Professor Gigi Foster from the University of New South Wales. Um, Professor Foster, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Paul. Lovely to be here. Great to have you on. Now, look, we never want to shy away from uh, difficult conversations, I think, on, on this show. Um, and one of the questions on everybody's minds uh, in the last few months is whether the lockdowns uh, globally in response to the emergence of the new coronavirus uh, went too far, right? So when you look at the economic impacts, right? So enormous GDP contractions, particularly in China, where, um, you know, the world's second largest economy, there are tens of millions of people unemployed in OECD countries. There's now what appears to be a fairly significant crisis with the virus starting to emerge in uh, Brazil and Russia. Um, and uh, just today, uh, we're recording on Thursday, um, you know, uh, another 230,000 people uh, rec- reported out of work in the jobs data. Unemployment rate at 7.1%, um, but that was accompanied by a collapse in the participation rate. Um, if that had stayed where it was in March, the unemployment rate would be something like 11%, and we expect more um, jobs to be lost in the coming months, right? So this isn't over by any means, and... Also, this week, there is an outbreak in Beijing, and we're starting to see um, some restrictions getting tightened there. Again, markets being shut down, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think particularly in Australia, but in many countries, um, there is a sense that we may have won the battle, but I think it's also clear that the war is far from over. Okay, And I'm sure um, you know that the... The severity of these lockdowns has been a conversation stopper for months in this country uh, and all around the world, Um, and I'm sure everybody's perspective has moved a bit on it um, since the first time. Um, And I think it's an interesting time to have a conversation about how we might do it um, better next time around. So, Gigi, you're of the view that um, some of the impacts of those lockdowns were more severe than probably anticipated? Um, and um, that they probably shouldn't have been as tough as they were. Yeah, I mean, I basically think that the lockdown policies here and also overseas were often pursued on the back of uh, epidemiological modeling alone, rather than a a broader modeling of what the different policy options we had available to us would do to human welfare. And so we ended up with much more uh, draconian, more blanket policies that were not actually proportionate to the threat that was faced. And of course, it's easy to say this in hindsight, but even at the time in mid-March, there was data that we had, and there were experts that we had that we didn't consult. And uh, we we looked at with this narrow focus on COVID-19 infections, COVID-19 deaths. We didn't look at more granular data and take it seriously in terms of our policies in Australia. In Sweden, of course, they did have a slightly different um, 
pantheon of policies. And they have had also different, uh, different economic effects coming out, and I'm expecting to see a bit more of that difference as we go forward. But uh, even in Sweden, they know, I mean, nobody has done perfectly with this thing. Um, but I do think, yes, that the, the initial lockdowns uh, that the Australian government enacted were done on the basis of a, of a very limited set of data, and very differently than we normally make policy. And that's one of the, the big lessons for me, is that we really lost our, our normal minds, our normal heads, in terms of the policymaking arena when we, when we enacted those lockdowns. And I'd like, I'd like to, us to return to that kind of sensible policymaking where we're balancing, in a very boring way, costs and benefits on both sides. So what could they have, what, um, what could they have looked at in terms of the modeling to help in your view, improve those decisions? Well, first of all, they can look at the, the broader costs of locking down an economy. So when we talk about costs of uh, you know, what we've done, people often think you know, they can't get their hands on it because it's not like a count of deaths. You know, COVID-19 deaths, boy, that's, that's sexy, right? Because you can say, oh, there's 19 people have died or, or how many people have been infected. Those numbers are very seductive and people have a lot more trouble actually imagining in their heads the, the aggregate human cost of all the various myriad things that are going to happen when you lock something down, like the Australian economy, which is which is essentially the backbone of, you know, human welfare in this country. That's, I mean, the reason why economists generally wring our hands about small changes in GDP, much smaller than what we're looking at right now, is that we know that GDP flows through into more government spending, more private spending, more support for all the various services and, and goods that, that, you know, make our lives as they are today in Australia, luxurious, lucky, you know, long-lived, happy, safe. healthy, safe, all those things. Now, if we, if we return to, you know, a, a much lower position of GDP, GDP per capita, that means that comes with less government spending on education, infrastructure, health research, everything else. So that gets crowded out by this focus on COVID-19, and it, it suffers in the longer run, which means it'll be that much more time until we deliver the next cure for cancer, that much more time until we come up with, you know, the next green revolution, you know, breakthrough, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all these other costs that are much more intangible, but hugely meaningful, the most meaningful, because GDP per capita is the most meaningful driver of human welfare over the last 200 years, bar none. So, so that's one thing people have a lot of trouble figuring out, you know, getting a number for in their head. And we don't have economic models necessarily that directly will produ produce numbers of, you know, people lost or whatnot, because it's, it really hasn't been you know, the focus of what we've had to do. Now, if we've been asked... So, so to raise one ugly um, mm. and, and distressing, very distressing point is uh, you know, all the conversation that there was at the time in March and April around, for example, domestic violence and suicide. Oh, yeah. Um, so, um, and those numbers are coming in now, and they're, they're scary. I mean, that's very direct numbers of body counts, right? I, we don't call infections, but, you know, numbers of abuse cases, number of calls put into the domestic violence support networks, etc. There's also crowded out healthcare, and we've heard a bit about that more recently with, for example, cancer patients who aren't going in for their normal checkups or people who don't go in to get lumps checked or other kinds of, you know, healthcare, stroke victims, heart attack victims who don't want to call an ambulance because they're afraid they're going to catch COVID-19 on the bus. I mean, that, that sort of thing has direct impacts on people's livelihoods and the length of their lives and the quality of their lives. And those are two things we should be really seriously care caring about if we are serious economists. That's what economics thinks is important. So there, there are ways of measuring some of these impacts, right? So uh, maybe you can talk us through the, the, the collies and the well-being. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I would say there's three, really, three currencies in which we can talk about uh, human costs. And one of them is the value of a statistical life. And you'll see that in some of the blogs about this, uh, this crisis. And the value of a statistical life is often uh, used when we're setting whole of um, economy policy on things like uh, transport safety or uh, environmental regulation or, you know, environment related sort of laws that are going to be applicable to the whole industry and we're worried about possible negative effects on people, right? So that is usually somewhere between $5 million and $10 million per life. And that's an average, right? So it's not for sort of, you know, something that is exactly correct for every single person, but it's on average what we would expect and we use that in those kinds of policy setting scenarios. Now there's also the quality, which is a quality adjusted life year. The idea there is that you have a, a year of life that is equal to one in this currency if you have just perfect health, and then slightly less than one as you accumulate disadvantage or disability or you know mental health problems or whatever else. And so, using that kind of figure, we can it basically allows us to acknowledge the fact that people who are older, for example, if you were to look at their remaining lifespan, that contains fewer qualities because they won't be around as long as someone who's younger. And that's relevant in this virus debate because, of course, as we know, and I don't think is at all, you know, contested anymore, older people are more likely to die from this virus than younger people, and they're more likely to experience severe symptoms as well. 
Now there's a final currency called the Wellbe, which is the well-being adjusted life year, and that's the newest on the scene, and it's been uh, invented actually by uh, some colleagues at the university at the um, in London. London School of Economics, and essentially that tries to capture the negative welfare effects that that you have when you're not talking really about death or disability per se. It's maybe just mental health. So when you respond to a question that says, "How satisfied are your are you with your life overall?" and you say, "Well, I'm perfectly satisfied," that's a zero to ten answer. If you say ten, you've got well be equals one, right? And then for every one unit change, you take away a little bit of, of well be. And then essentially, that number allows you that currency allows you to accumulate all the negative welfare effects that are in the mind, or mental health effects that people may be experiencing due to, for example, isolation, loneliness, uh, you know, being at home in a stressful situation with a, a dysfunctional family, etc. And then, you know, you equate, equate that to what the number of well-bees is for a whole life, which is something like 460 or so, and then you can start talking in terms of lives lost versus lives saved from any given policy in terms of that well-be currency, right? So these are currencies that we use in economics regularly. We don't talk about it a lot because people don't like to hear it. It's not fun. It's not pleasant to be talking about human life in, in monetary terms. But at the, rea the reality of the situation is we live in a world of scarce resources and every use of those resources carries with it an implication of our priorities. So maybe take me through the, the mud map really quickly on like so how do you so so you have a rough estimate of um the hit to gdp or or the hit to employment mm -hmm. by um, knowing what your policy decisions are in terms of industry shutdowns etc right so you have a broad idea and then how do you feed how do you overlay uh, that, that, yeah. Um, so you would say, okay, well, we think that GDP is going to fall by X percentage points, let's say, in you know the next quarter, and then you say, well, that's going to come with um, such and such reduction in government expenditure. We know from various research sources that already exist that have been done on data before today that when you have more government expenditure or higher GDP per capita, you have more longevity. And there's lots of different examples of how we've estimated that over time. You know, the rise of China, for example, it gives you an example, um, or India. You can also do it in Australia. Now, it's not, of course, always a one-to-one -one mapping. In the U.S., we know that longevity has been falling, despite the fact that their GDP is very high. So, you know, we're, we're relying on the fact that Australia is not like the U.S., does have a functional uh, healthcare system that's universal. So, you know, we have a bit more uh, advantage there. And so you you'd also estimate the amount of unemployment that that fall in GDP will cause, right? And then you can come up with the, the amounts of qualities, or if you like, well-bees, that are going to be uh, implied by that kind of a reduction, that size of a reduction in GDP. Now, nobody's you know, done this in, in the popular press in Australia. I've seen a couple of estimates um, that are wildly off in terms of their stand, not following the standard practices that I've been talking about. Um, but in terms of an actual reasoned you know, uh, model of this, it's not my job. Right? It's my job to say it hasn't been done, right? I'd like the government to do it because that is the government's job. And that's, that's something on which they were basically negligent on, on, in this policymaking uh, situation. Yeah, my, my, my retail brain as it is, I, I've, I've always got to put something into real terms. Can we allocate, and my father is actually someone who said, and he said elect about the Welbies and the Qualbies and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Can we actually give him a number so that we can yeah. we can have it in real terms? Yeah. Because I mean, we, we've got, the, we've got the, the, the broad, let's back of the, can we do a back, back of, of the envelope? envelope? Sure, yeah, no, I, mean, I have done a back of the envelope. And of course, what is, what you he's need 70, to- He's 76. 76, okay. Yeah. So the, the amount of qualities that you're actually sacrificing with a COVID-19 death, right, is equal on normal valuations, because we normally think of a quality as worth somewhere between $50,000 and $150,000, right. okay? That's one quality's worth. One quality, Yeah. It. So typically, the people who die from COVID-19 are have about five to seven years remaining in life. So you multiply that figure by that amount. So you're getting somewhere less than a million, somewhere around $500,000 worth of life, maybe $600,000 worth of life remaining, okay? So that's your, that's your core number then to, to think about. And then you say, okay, how many, now this is the difficult you know, thought experiment part, mm -hmm. how many lives have we actually saved with the lockdown, right? And that's a very difficult identification problem, which is another big area to discuss. Because many people, you know, when they first started hearing about this virus, they were like, oh, no, we don't know. It's fine. It won't affect us, you know, China, whatever. And then it starts to be more and more in the media. It starts to be more and more scary. And people start thinking, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And then they voluntarily 
right, voluntarily wrap themselves in plastic wrap on the bus and, you know, wear six masks and don't touch anybody else, don't have sex with their partner, all these things. So basically what we need to do is, if we would like to do, is identify what the marginal impact was of the lockdown measures per se on top of the already voluntary measures that people would have been taking because they got really scared of this virus. Um, and that's, I would say, one step back. So... And that, that's a very difficult one because it really depends on people's sentiment. I was still walking out and doing normal things and wouldn't have worn a mask and was you know, thinking, well, this is a really nasty flu, particularly if you're older. I don't want to catch it and I don't want to go near my 89-year-old father, but I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do these things. But I think the vast majority of the Australian population were absolutely scared out of their wits. And so that would have required them to you know, voluntarily wash hands, etc., you know, keep masks on. Um, and some of those measures are completely reasonable. Washing hands, I think, is something we should be doing anyway. And yeah. we do it in flu seasons. And so, sure, obviously. But that doesn't mean we need to shut down the economy. So the question is, if we then lock down, then what was the impact marginally on the number of people saved? Right Now... That's still a matter of debate in the scientific circles, but I would say in terms of the data in Australia, the most severe lockdowns occurred after we had peak infections. So it doesn't seem to me sort of causally logical that in fact it was the lockdowns that caused our infections to start going down. Now, I do think that many of those voluntary measures, particularly the hand washing and the you know, social distancing, those were pretty effective and they probably would have done most of the work towards reducing infections without needing to send people home from their places of business, without needing to you know, basically have these extreme economic measures, which Sweden avoided, for example. That was the main difference between us and Sweden. Sweden was still doing a lot of voluntary measures, right? But they didn't destroy links between employers and employees as much as we did, um, particularly for our temporary workers. We did have JobKeeper here, which was very important in keeping those links together, but that's, of course, now possibly expiring at the end of September. So we have a bigger mess to clean up because of those big lockdowns. Um, and so that's the first step. The second, if I take two steps back, it's what could the government have done to contain the fear? Because the fear was driving some irrational behavior. Right? And, and that kind of irrational behavior, you know, it doesn't help anybody. It's inefficient. inefficient. It, it, it's just a, a cost that we would like not to have happen. And again, if you look at Australia versus Sweden, I hate to keep coming back to them, but it's a good example of a place where they really did try to pro provide perspective in the messaging early on to not stoke fear. The media headlines were much more measured and just based on fact rather than all this, you know, very scary stuff that you saw in Australia. And I know this because... Killer bat flu. You know, oh, yeah. yeah. And yeah. like, you know, it's going to go off a cliff and you know we're hitting the wall and all these things i mean i just did a paper about this actually and uh you look at the headline contrast it's just really really striking and yet in in sweden there are fewer people scared of the virus right more people were scared of terrorism than the virus at some point in the in the you know window of observation in my paper and and particularly the older people actually are more likely to agree with sweden's policies than the younger ones and so there was a control of fear in <clears throat> sweden which we did not have here mm. and i think that also helped because it made people less prone to make decisions as they would in a recession because mm. um, what we have now in australia we have the lockdown and the the problems coming out of that and we have this real bearishness on the part of our people you know that oh my gosh you know everything's changed and I, I'm not sure whether I can spend and I'm not sure if I can take a vacation you know I don't know I, I'm feeling more like a person feels in a recession right that's mm. what the, the average Joe on the street is feeling and that's really bad <laughs> yeah absolutely um, and I remember there certainly was at the time there was a lot in the media uh, I think you know the government made its decisions from what I can see on the basis of the advice they were getting okay yeah I, you know, I think so too I, I, I don't think Scott Morrison is the type of person who panics in the face of media pressure this easily on something this big, okay? As it Just be goes on holiday. Quite the opposite. This is true. Yes. Um, but uh, there certainly was a lot of public commentary saying, you know, plaintive people on their knees, please lock us down, you know, shut down the economy, shut down everything so that, you mm -hmm. know, everybody goes to lose their jobs. And I would say also this was largely a metropolitan phenomenon too um you know that because we saw it kind of around the world mm -hmm. uh in happening in other in other cities uh, and it wasn't happening here and people were sort of wondering why now um i think we're going to take a short break and we'll come back and talk about i think our various the the spectrum i think of opinions that there are on them um, uh on, on the scale of the lockdowns and um, but it's certainly uh, a really interesting question we'll also look at the um the big moral question which is well you know um, yes, we may save qualies, um, but what about saving, you know, people that we know, etc.? 
We'll be back right now for this break. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to The VIP Show. I'm Paul Colgan here in Sydney with James Whelan, Ken Vexler in Amsterdam, and our guest is Professor Gigi Foster from the University of New South Wales. So... Um, how do you think about, you talked about the government and its options for sort of lessening, reducing that, that fear. Yeah. Um, that was, um, what, what could have been done? Well, it was very clear that in the messaging that was being received, not just from the medics, but and, and then promulgated by the government, but also in the popular media and social media, there was very little perspective. So one thing the government could have done is when promoting, when saying, oh, this is the number of infections, this is the number of deaths, etc., it could have provided a, a sort of a, a context in which those numbers were arising, right? So we lose about 300 to 400 people every day around this time in Australia, right? It was never told to us, oh, well, the, the, the number of people dying from COVID-19, even now the number of people who have died from COVID-19 is you know, a third of the, of the people we would no normally lose in a day, right? A day, not three months, right? So this is a, this taken a small amount of our people. Right? In a normal flu season, how many people do we normally lose? Right? So give some perspective, give a bit of context, and talk about the other things that can possibly kill you. Like, mm, I don't know, maybe not getting enough exercise, being really unhappy so that you're going to kill yourself, right? not having enough uh, social contact, all of these things being really important. Right? So we did hear about how important it was to make sure you were still connected and everything, but we didn't hear figures and facts about numbers of people who are going to die from that stuff if we lock down people in their homes. And... and it's perfectly possible to get estimates of those, those kinds of numbers. But that, people who could generate those estimates weren't asked. The only people who were asked were those who were looking directly at COVID-19. And those were the, the, you know, the modelers who had delivered these, these you know, crazy estimates, as it turns out. They were off by orders of magnitude of the numbers of people who were going to be infected and going to die in this country. And you know, if you look around the world now, no country, regardless of policy, has lost the number of people on a per capita basis that was being projected that we'd lose here in Australia. Isn't if that, we didn't isn't that the point, though? Isn't that the idea? It has to look like an overreaction at the end of it. When you go and and, and first off, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of talk in the past tense, and I don't think that we can talk past tense because we're still in the in the midst of it. In my view, that we what if the government had done nothing though, and this had actually turned out to be something that was quite significant? Look at the data that they were dealing with, that we were all dealing with. That when when Paul and I first talked about this back in it was. Late January, I started getting some whispers about it, and then February, it absolutely was. And I said, you know, and, and I started shorting Qantas and Sydney airports and those sorts of things. Oh, good for you! You made, yeah. a, made a bundle. Yeah, it was a bit. It was alright. Um, but um, the, uh, the 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 we started, but are we far enough along with this so we can actually look back on it and say that, that with any definitive any definitive statement to say that we have done right or done wrong? Yeah, but, I think we can say that we have done wrong. Absolutely, I think we can say that. And I think we knew based enough on in what, March. Based on, based on the fact that we have stabbed our economy in the stomach and we can predict, we now know numbers coming in in terms of the suicides and the domestic violence that was just talked about, but also we can predict the unemployment effects, you know, the, the GDP reductions, the, the expenditure on, on healthcare in, of other sorts, not COVID-19 related, and, and the attention to people in those situations. I mean, and we're only talking about Australia. This has been an absolute yeah. humanitarian crisis for the entire wor developing world, right? And con context contextually, sorry, Gigi, to speak over the top, but con contextually, we're not alone. We're not a unique 
<clears throat> or rather Australia. I mean, I'm saying we as a former resident, citizen, whatever, but uh, it's not unique. I mean, it's a global phenomenon. Um, I, I've, I've written down some notes and I've got some questions, so I'm, I'm desperate not to talk over you. So I'll let you finish your point and I'm sorry, and then I'll, I'll ask away. No, it's perfectly fine. And, and you're absolutely right. We are not alone. Every, every country has faced this to some extent and uh, different countries have had different policies. So I definitely want to cover the developing world thing because I think it's one of the really underappreciated um, uh, elements of this, like the impact that this has had in the developing world. But Ken, go for your life, mate. Um, I don't even know where to start. I suppose the various notes I've made. Um, uh, Gigi, actually, quick question for you. Do you feel, and I don't know actually in the instance of Australia because, well, I'm not there anymore, but when the initial consultation was made with epidemiologists, I still can't pronounce the word, um, was there a government consultation or was there a, a panel committee that included economists in their overall uh, consultation to, so as to get a reaction function? Were, were economists consulted? It's a really good question, and I, uh, I got an answer. The best answer I've gotten actually was on ABC Q&A um, about a month and a half ago or whenever it was, April 20th, I think. I was on there with um, the lead epidemiologist uh, from the modeling group, and uh, basically she admitted that they had not taken into consideration the costs of the policies that were being enacted in terms of other lives that would be uh, sacrificed. So, I mean, that tells so me that nobody had done a proper cost-benefit analysis, which is essentially... Okay, so know, that's the epidemiologist epidemiologists but had the gov anyone from the government actually asked about you know were there economists involved no I, I've not heard. I don't. I mean, I don't know okay, anything. That, that was my best. That was the best information that I've gotten, which I took on faith no, because understand. she was leading the the, the team. Huh? I, I think one thing we can say confidently, Ken, is that Treasury would have been very closely involved. Um, yeah, yeah, but but I, uh, to Gigi's point, and sort of to take her side in in an element of it, Treasury would have been closely involved, but Treasury. Uh, prints money, consults on whether there should or could or not be a surplus, a deficit in the, in the current account, etc., etc. They're not necessarily uh, in a position where they can objectively say or will say job losses, GDP, this, that, the other. So I'm thinking external, you know, external economists. But okay, I think I think that, was, that answers my point, um, or rather my question. Uh, beyond that, I suppose. Yeah, look, we, we were headed for a recession anyway. This this tipped us over the edge as far as I'm concerned. Again, us, it tipped Australia over the edge, but we were headed that way anyway, as, 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 as I see it. Um, we're on the, on the path there. Uh, this may well make the recession far more severe potentially than it could have been anyway, but that's what happens also after the fact that, you know, 30 years without one. Um, I, I suppose I, I'm just, I really am having a tough time wrapping my head around, yeah, the, the cost benefit analysis. Like, how, how do you, and I understand qualies and, and wellies and, and, and all of that, but all I'm hearing is anecdotal data or evidence versus a lack of empirical evidence, right? So I just, I just don't know. I mean, and, and the government had to decide, be it in Australia or globally, they had to act fairly quickly on fairly limited information. Right now, it can be argued that Australia did poorly, did well in reacting and whatnot, but I'm, I'm not sure that they did any any worse than anyone else out there as far as their reaction function. Did they overreact? Maybe, but you know th that's a counterfactual. That how are we ever going to really know? So okay, so let me address the issue of you know do we ever have the right data or is there empirical data we can draw on? Um, when we go back to mid-March, I mean, what we were drawing on were models. Those were models, right? Just like economic models, right? So anything that, you know, a person can write down and say, here's my representation of the world. Here's what that representation implies for what will happen next year or next month or next week. And what wasn't being brought to the table was a model of the global effects of the policies, just a model of the number of infections or number of deaths that would be averted if we took certain actions. Yeah? And, and so those, those models, as we say, right, they were proven ex post, as has happened in previous virus outbreaks, MERS and SARS and things like this, to have been erroneous by an order of magnitude off by an order of magnitude. And I, and I say that very confidently. If you look around the world, look at the number of people who have died in any country and then adjust it for the number of people in that country. So take a per capita death rate and apply it to Australia. The number of deaths that we could have experienced at the outside is about 20,000. 
okay? If we took the worst policy in the world, right? Take Brazil or take, uh, you know, any place, New York City, UK, we would have lost 20,000 people, okay? Not 150,000, which was the number that was being bandied about in mid-March, okay? So when you say, well, I don't see the data, well, the data that was being seen, was being projected at the time in mid-March was generated by models, which, by the way, have ex post come under huge scientific scrutiny in terms of not having been well-documented and all sorts of other things, oh, but the, we, yeah, we won't... Imperial College Imperial College yeah, yeah. stuff has been, you know, really w widely discredited, but... And that's certainly something where we should learn. We should learn how to make those models better, the epidemiological models. Drawing on the knowledge of economics, by the way, because a lot of those models have this zombie assumption built in, which is that you keep doing the same thing even when five mm. or six or seven percent of the people around you are dying. You keep going to work and doing the same stuff as you were always doing. We know people don't do that. That's not how they act. So we need to build those, those behaviors, those strategic interactions with each other that economic seasons are bread and butter into the epidemiological yeah, the models. the spread in some ways was, was shown as a straight line. Exactly. At a certain multiplication rate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Constant, no heterogeneity across people and it just, you know, not realistic assumptions. Now, in terms of how many people actually would die from the policies themselves, the lockdown policies, well, we're generating data from that in every day that the policies go on, that the lockdowns go on. So, suicides, domestic violence, <coughs> these kinds of numbers have been coming in, not just in Australia, but overseas wow. as well. You know, somebody tasked by the government to collect those data would actually have something to work with now. We also have estimates from other literatures, for example, from the, the child development literature on the long-term effects of child abuse. I would expect with kids pulled out of school and put into their homes, some fraction of those children, unfortunately, including in Australia, are going to be thrust into disadvantaged and, and dysfunctional homes. And that is a, a ripe environment for more abuse. Now, we would have to estimate that, as you have to estimate anything in a model, but we can estimate the marginal additional abuse and then take the estimates from the models that already exist that have been you know conducted in studies before COVID-19 on how much that abuse is going to impact those children going forward in terms of whatever outcome you care about mental health wages fertility happiness I don't care right we can get those those kinds of estimates and then present them in a in a full more more holistic model of the projected impacts of our policies. So there's an issue here, isn't it? Like, obviously, like, we're talking about particularly um, with some of the, the things you just talked on, touched on. They're, you know, extremely sensitive um, and uh, topics and, and um, you know, you're talking about very tragic scenarios. So they, people want to see action. People want to see um, preventative um, interventions as well. So... Um, I think that's so an excellent point, by the way. And the yeah. preventative interventions, the desire to do something, mm. that I think is something that strongly motivated the government originally in, the, in, these, in these policies. Mm. I think, in fact, the public sentiment was screaming out for some sacrifice to be made. Some sacrifice yes, because yeah. this threat was so big and so looming and so scary that everybody needed to feel like something was being done. I mean, this is the politician syllogism, right? We need to do something. There's something. Let's do that. Right? And it's a, it's a religious, we, it's a religious uh, response. Are, are we not looking through, you know, at a lot of this, if not most of it, through the prism of the luxury of the, of the passage of time? Like hindsight, Harry Hindsight, best trader, best fund manager, never got anything wrong. Um, I'm not trying to be glib about it. Like this is, this is truly horrible. Like uh, I, and I have personal anecdotal evidence and, you know, of, of all the things that you've mentioned. But... You know, if we take even I don't know Sweden against Australia, uh, we talk about how the me how the you know the government handled um, the media and, and, and the messages. Uh, we're talking about cultural differences. A, B, as I said, are we not looking through it? You know, with, with the luxury of the passage of time, like what we could have should have done. But here we are. How do we deal with what comes next? Yeah, sure. I mean, you can always say that. And I think I mentioned at the beginning, there is a difference between hindsight and, and what we could have done better at the time. And I think at the time, you know, we could have provided more perspective in our messaging. We could have involved a broader suite of people at the table in the policymaking room. Um, we could have uh, essentially taken more proportionate measures that were in reaction to the data that we knew at the time. In mid-March, we knew that this thing was much more virulent against older people than against younger people. We knew that children were not a vector for this thing. Shutting down schools was a decision that was explicitly rejected by Sweden for a very rational reason, which is the kids aren't the ones who typically 
fall ill and die from this thing. And if you shut down schools, you send kids home, you have a massive impact on your productivity because the parents who are workers can't work to the same level. And so that's a huge economic policy right there. That's not just a health policy. That's an economic policy. And again, economists, I don't think were involved. And that's a lesson to learn. So I think there were several things we could have done better at the time. We certainly could have done the cruise ship thing better, (laughs) right? Mm. I mean, there were obvious mistakes that happened even with the the overreaction. So are we talking about a balance here, though? Because Britain, for example, uh, Boris Johnson famously talking about, I think, you know, one of the things we should do is take it off the chin. Um, Very British. And, (laughs) and, uh, well, they took it out of the chin and and now look at the joint. It's still taking it, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The country is in in disarray. Uh, 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 Put the riots to to one side, etc. But... but but there's a lot of confusion, yep. um, enormous contraction in, in GDP. Um, uh, it's, it's bad. Um, and basically they were late with broadly the same kind of restrictions mm. with that Australia. And piss weak. Yeah, and, 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 and weak. And, and they had um, yeah, a certain epidemiologist who was famously breaking the rules for <laughs> romantic reasons. So, <laughs> Wasn't that a cracking story? That was story? a fun story. <laughs> yeah, beautiful, right. beautiful slice of <laughs> An British eyesight history. test. I mean, they're, they're renowned for their eyesight tests, aren't they? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The British. you got to drive. That's the best way to do it. I believe that that's what Winston Churchill once said too. Uh, if, if, you, if you can't see, get behind the wheel and go for a quick drive, find out if you're, uh, if you're blind or not. But the, <laughs> was our healthcare system, and I know the answer to this, was our healthcare system able to deal with the, the other side? So the male... The word that I've got is that it absolutely wasn't at the time. It is now, but it wasn't then. Well, it depends on what we thought we were going to experience. And we, at, the, at the time, we thought we were going to experience, because we were being told by these models, a, a, a massive uh, influx of COVID-19 patients, right, who never arrived. So at the time, yeah, there was, there was concern that the ICUs would be overflowing and we saw these body bags coming, you know, on the streets of Milan and, and people were freaking out thinking that's going to be us next. And so, yes, of course, there was going to be additional investment. There was also in Sweden, right? I mean, they bought a lot of, you know, beds and they converted things to hospitals. And I mean, people were preparing definitely for a very, very big outbreak. And I don't think there's, you know, any reason to not be cautious about that. I mean, yes, we should put some money towards getting some ventilators and because we thought we were going to need them. But again, it's the proportionality of the response, right? The fact that this was a massive blanket policy, this lockdown, right? That, to me, always made me scratch my head because, you know, there have been... The 1918 flu is often thought of as a, as a parallel example, but mm. it was killing people who were young, right? The average age of death was something like 28 with the, with the Spanish flu. And it, it killed, ended up killing, you know, millions of people, right? And we've only gotten to, what, half a million in the world, right, so far with this COVID-19 thing. And the number of infections and deaths has been decreasing in places that had really awful outbreaks originally, like Italy, for example, in New York City, right? And so it seems to be following the typical kind of path of coronaviruses, frankly, which is, you know, you get a nasty uprising and then you sort of have a decline and it's in the virus's virus's evolutionary interest to get a little less virulent over time so that it can circulate better in the population Mm. and reproduce more. So we would probably be expecting that direction of, 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 you know, trajectory for this thing over the next year. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think definitely there's... This, this sense of, yeah, we, we could have maybe uh, done some more proportionate responses, which doesn't mean that we didn't do anything. You know, more shoring up of the healthcare system, sure. Stopping the cruise ships, yeah. Mm. Travel bans, yeah, yeah, sure. Right, but closing schools? Locking everybody down in their homes? That, to me, is a sacrificial response. That's a religious response so, saying, oh my gosh, we've got to do something. Oh, if I do this, I'll feel better because in my head, somehow, in some superstitious way, it's associated. But, but, but also... It, like to, I hope I get to the point of this in simple enough terms. But it's the question that was in front of people was, um, if you allow certain things to go on and continue, my loved one or my father or mother or whatever is at risk of dying, and I can't yeah. stomach that. I understand. And this is one of the big problems in ethics, right? When you talk about a personal uh, relation, somebody you love and care for, it's very different than if you're talking about what a society as a whole should do. This is one of the gut-wrenching problems that happens in, in emergency rooms, in triages, in military hospitals. Um, you know, there's a reason why doctors don't operate on their own children. There's a reason why we have transplant committees deciding who's going to get a liver, who's going to get a heart. Because if you had the, the individual people's families, right, deciding, of course they would say, give mine the heart, give mine the liver. Of course we would. 
And, you know, I, clearly I was, you know, telling my dad, stay at home, you know, make sure that you just get your groceries delivered. He's 89, right? He's playing online bridge. He's fine. He's in New York State, but he's fine, you know? And that sort of thing, you know, on a personal level, of course, we act to protect. But to run a whole society on the basis of the values that we would place on the, on the lives of our loved ones is completely financially infeasible because we just don't have the money because love is just, uh, it, I, it raises the value of people too much. I actually have a question on that point. I mean, and, and you've, you've brought the perfect point up. Does this, I mean, I'd love to hear your take, Gigi, on what this means for the social contract that we implicitly live with, right? So, I mean, implicitly, I think we, we understand as a, society, as a society, if we do right by one another, and we do right by the government, we live by the laws and we, you know, we do what we need to do, then ultimately the other side of that equation is the government will uh, ultimately look after us and, and corporations and whatever else will also because of, you know, all the pressures put on. And, and by that I mean fiscal uh, and monetary stimulus that's launched into the economy to, to re, you know, repair damage done, uh, loan repayment holidays as, as given by the banks or, or, you know, furloughs, whatever it is. I mean, what's your take on that? So, so surely this has an impact on, on that social contract. Yes, I actually think it's, it's um, bruised the social contract as seen by our younger generation. I think that the, the young people, the, the school children, the university students, the casual workers feel quite betrayed at this moment by, by their government um, because they have been stopped in their tracks. Their, they, their economy has tanked even further than it would have, by the way. And I, am, I do agree with you that the signs were not looking fantastic even before COVID-19 um, economically in, in this country. Um, but we've made it so much worse for these people. And they will carry the scars of that for, you know, a, a, the the decade to come in their lives and they have so much more life to live right and so i think that that is where the abrogation of contract has occurred and i think the way to to position this in terms of you know the the, the bargain between government and people is to say the government tries to set policy that will maximize the welfare of its people and we are a people we belong to each other. Every person belongs to every other person. And so do not care just about your brother, your sister, your uncle, your father. Care about every Australian and know that the Australian government is making policy in the best interests of the Australian person's welfare, where that is essentially a collective of all of us. And, and unless you can really hand on heart say that, then you're talking about a government which is favoring the welfare of one group over the other group, and, and that is a, a corrupt government. And what, what, what do you think? What do you think the Australian government's doing? Has it favoured one group over another, or is it treating everyone and, and, and all things equally? Well, I think the effects of this lockdown are clearly and uncontrovertibly um, regressive. So I think that it actually has hurt the people who have least. And from that perspective, it's, it's furthered the inequality that we already see in our, in our society. And in, in Australia, you see inequality mainly in the form of the rich being really, really, really ultra rich rather than the poor sleeping on the streets. And that's because we have a pretty good social welfare system here, um, you know, pretty good targeted tax and transfer system, which we may talk about later in the context of UBI. But, you know, what we've done is basically take the people who are youngest, least experienced in the, the most precarious positions in the labor market and those who are in still, still in school and foisted big costs on them and those of us who have nice cushy salary jobs who are you know over 35 we're all fine so that's okay. a regressive uh, policy perhaps and and i don't argue with you on that point or the fact that those will be the effects but again australia is not unique this is a global phenomenon caused by reaction measures you know so i'm, I'm just quite conscious of the fact that like this isn't just Australia. This is a global phenomenon. So, so the disenfranchised or the you know the generation that you're talking about, or the growth of wealth disparity, income inequality, etc., is being widened out globally. I mean, that doesn't make it better or worse. But I, I'm just I'm just conscious of the fact that, like, yeah, I'm definitely not a fan of Skomo or his band of morons, right, or or whatever. But uh, and. Yeah, how they handled it, different story. But it's just, I, I'm just conscious of the fact that we can't just hold Australia as a unique, uh, you know, example of, of what's gone on. This is, this is, you know, worldwide. But no, no question, it's been a global mistake. I mean, you know, many, many countries have fallen into this trap. Um, again, Sweden is a bit of an outlier. Um, the US has been, particularly in certain states, they've been resisting uh, the lockdowns. 
Um, but, you know, I, I agree with you that the, the actions of many countries, not just Australia's uh, reactions, are what's feeding into the negative effects, which will be mainly felt by those who don't have as much in this world. And that's not just in Australia, but in the developing world. There are going to be hundreds of thousands of people dying of famine. Famine. Right, things that we don't want to think still exist in this world. We're going to be going back in time 10 years in terms of progress on poverty. We're going to be going back in terms of progress on on healthcare uh, treatment for TB, for HIV, other kinds of you know malaria, etc. I mean, I've seen this is because one of the things is you know when you've got um, say G20 countries going into recessions like this, the downstream effects in the global economy are severe. Like we don't really see that, but the demand from from say G20 economies drives huge amounts of activity of course. In, in, in developing countries. So as I've said before, we don't buy our latte, and so the the farmer in Ethiopia doesn't need to make the coffee, right? And so we, you know, that dries up. So it's more even upstream, right? It's the raw materials and the intermediate products, and even the services. Some companies have been told to come back to Australian shores to not have their outsourced call centers. Well, there goes Hyderabad's source of income, right? And and the humanitarian crisis in India is is abominable. Abominable. Can I can I ask a question? So if we if we agree at face value that this is a global phenomenon, whether governments overreacted, underreacted, doesn't matter. But Australia is not unique in its uh, slowdown of economic growth, its GDP, its unemployment, its disparity. My question is this: in relative terms, has Australia lost its ranking in the world in the world standings? And by that I mean, at some point, sooner or later, growth globally will come back. The pace will be incredibly slow, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And with that growth in Australia will re-emerge, you know, relative to the global picture, right? So I suppose what I'm trying to understand is as things normalise or growth comes back or whatever, has Australia uh, dropped down the ladder so that, you know, it, it won't grow in the same terms on a global scale or relative term as, as it would have had COVID never happened? Yeah, I mean, what, what's your take on that? So, very good question, and of course, I don't have a crystal ball like most uh, economic no, forecasters. No, no, do I. <laughs> but I mean, I can I can talk about some broad trends. So, so I do think that because Australia has had on paper fewer infections and fewer deaths, it may be that when things start opening up, we will be able to trade off of that reputation for having done the right thing, and attract more of the, for example, foreign student demand that otherwise might have gone to the UK or to the US. Right. So this big hullabaloo about higher education might be a little overblown because we might actually clean up being the lucky country yet again. Um, now, I worry a bit about the trans-Tasman bubble and other bubble ideas because I think, you know, if we're really serious about trying to send all the stuff that we used to send to China to New Zealand, you know, they don't have the people to absorb that. So that's just not a, that's a non-starter. So I think we've got to stop thinking about bubbles. Um, and if we do stop thinking about bubbles with some practical and reasonable restrictions and, and, and precautions in place, I think we could potentially clean up. Yeah, I think we could be in a, in a better position potentially. So yes, everybody will be worse off, which to me matters in an absolute sense. That to me matters. But you know, will Australia potentially be a little bit better off in the rankings? There's some possible, positive, you know, positive signs maybe that we could come out of this a bit ahead of where we would otherwise have been. I've, go on, Paul. I've, I was going to say I've got a positive. Go I've got a positive that uh, I've never been more productive ever. I have never been more productive. I'm doing, I'm doing this gig. I've got another thing going on on the side, starting up new projects, never been a better investor. My performance has never been better. I'm focused. I'm not having the, the hour on the bus in the morning and the hour on the bus. Is, is, is there, I mean, it's not just me, but when everyone does go back to work, the advances that we've made in the work from home economy, which it now is, I believe is going to be more productive that, 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 that as a nation and probably, I mean, look around the planet. My friends that, that, at Microsoft and Amazon, that the, 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 the back catalogue that they've got, this huge pipeline of companies that want to move on to the cloud because they need to catch up to this work from home. They need to, they're all playing catch up. That, that pipeline is going to go for a long time. I think that, I think that we're going to be more productive because of it. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of the other – I think that there will probably be less sick days – yeah, That's no, I think there'll be less sick days too. Yeah. Actually, in March, I was saying that I was saying I was hoping that we wouldn't have this massive recession, and I was like, well, we're washing our hands more, so hopefully we just won't have as bad a flu season. There won't be and a flu. What yeah, if we, yeah, exactly. There'll be no kids getting sick necessarily yep. as much because you know, I, I, and I think that's true. But there are some industries where you you can't work from home. I mean, edu- education is one of them. We've tried to well, put education tried. online, but well, you know, we all know. I mean, anybody who has kids has, has seen how that's worked out, which is not well very well. Yeah. And of course, I teach as well, and so you you know, you're trying to you know lock on to the eyes of your kids 
kids and figure out where where are you? Do you understand what I'm saying? You know, what should I should I have for another example? It's very difficult to teach online to the same level. And we know this, we've known this for years, right? Online teaching has been this big, you know, hullabaloo kind of, you know, cause for 20 years. And it's never really been, you know, a replacement for campuses. And so I do expect campuses will come back. And of course, many of the, you know, the laboring class cannot work from home, they have to be out at the bridge site to build the bridge, right? So people who are, you know, more sort of building infrastructure, which are the kinds of investments that I'm expecting the, the government to make, and even flag that it will yep. going forward as part of this recession, uh, getting out of the recession, those kinds of work, you know, that, that can't be done from home. So I, I don't think it's going to be across all industries. But in the, again, salaried, gentrified, you know, white collar knowledge worker class, which is basically everybody on this call, sure, we're sitting pretty. You know, we can make our, our latte at home with our latte machines, you know, but that's kind of, again, an, an increase in inequality. It's an incre increase in inequality of lifestyle, which is, you know, in, in my book, not necessarily such a great thing from a social perspective. Um, I do want to chat about a couple of other things. It'll have to be super, super quick because um, this has been such a fascinating part of our conversation. But just to wrap it up, Gigi, can you tell me, um, for future reference, right, if you were doing this all over again, how would you involve the policy decision? How would you change the policy decision process? So I would certainly have modelers from not just health, but other uh, areas that were impacted directly by whatever the decisions were going to be um, at the table. And you can't have 25 people, right? You need to have five or six because it's not going to be, you know, you have a very short span of time to make the, the call. But you definitely want health. You definitely want economics. You probably want something about, um, you know, the, the, the cafe, restaurant, arts and entertainment, anything that's high density, high touch, because that's of course where this you know this this thing is, is going to be spread. Yeah, um, tourism and retail. Tourism retail. Yeah. yeah. So you got representatives from these from these industries and actually come together and nut it out and have the courage to have those conversations about trade offs and and understand that not all models are perfect and you have to continually update 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 all the time right and if we had been doing more updating we might not have ever gotten to the stage four lockdowns actually so that's one thing. Um, secondly, be much more aware of messaging. So when you send a message about whatever the crisis thing is, recognize that your people. If if they are too scared, they're going to flop into a religious crowd kind of mentality. And that is not a good environment to set sensible policy. And you will be forced to do what they want as a politician because you cannot govern in a democracy when you have that kind of sentiment on your hands. You will have to find something to do. And so if you really find yourself in that corner, find a sacrifice that actually is minimally damaging and offer them that rather than saying, well, how about full lockdown? That's incredibly damaging, right? Find something else that you can hand up as a sacrifice and give to the, to people to, to minimize their fear while actually doing something sensible underneath the, the hood. So like I said at the start, we're not out of the woods uh, yet on this. Um, it's going to be an ongoing um uh, you know, policy response um, between now and for, for a long time, I think. Um, so um, we'll uh, we'll be keeping an eye on it now. Um, Ken, um, I think Gigi talked about the the Welby question uh, there earlier. You know, on a scale of one to ten, how how dissatisfied dissatisfied are you with markets this week? Mate? <laughs> Dragging the average down. I'm. How, how dissatisfied? Is that a genuine question, Colgo? Uh, because I'll give you a genuine answer. I'm I'm entirely ambivalent. I'm middle of the road. Don't give it rats. Um, simply because, well, things are things are going along the way they should. I mean, the the nonsense behind you're probably alluding to, you know, the Fed reannouncement of uh, of the uh, instrument or the, the the policy to buy go corporate bonds and whatnot, changing it from EDFs to indexes and whatnot. Who cares? Um, the the half life of that reaction in the market was a couple of minutes. Um, it was a policy that was announced March 23rd and they just rejigged it now. And nothing really changes fundamentally as far as I'm concerned. Beyond that, the market's just bubbling along. I think, you know, the, the, the compulsion of pundits and even participants to, to constantly have something happening or to be, you know, to be calling, right, next big leg down is coming or, or the spike up is happening. No, who cares? I mean, sometimes markets just bumble along and, and that's where we are at the moment I yeah, think. well bumble along typically growing uh, with uh, equities growing at about two percent every 24 hours ah uh, yeah this week's been sort of this week's been middle of the road mate i mean you know for every spike high we've come back lower and we, we are literally middle of the road at the moment uh okay so just quickly uh gigi wanted to get your you've just a big picture on the sort of on the moral hazard question with all of this central bank intervention you know um, 
five trillion dollars, I think I saw in something in, like that. in uh, since March. Five trillion dollars is only two percent of global of GDP. <laughs> double it, <laughs> double it. Yeah, um, you know. So um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the well seems bottomless. Um, you know, and as Ken referenced, corporate debt now. Um, you know, sure. You know, if your yields are about to blow out, or you it looks like that that one might be about to go underwater. Mm-hmm. They can buy it. Yeah, know. yeah, exactly. I mean, this this is of course yeah. any danger when you've got a lot of uh, a lot of government fiddling around in the economy. And I think, you know, if you want to talk about whether we can sustain that sort of um, intervention for a longer period of time, I think most people, even monetary theory, modern monetary theorists, I think they would say no, that's not sustainable for a longer period of time because you need to equilibrate the the amount of liquidity in your economy to the amount of activity in your economy. Right? There's got to be that rough equation, and we just got people sitting around, you know, still twiddling their thumbs. So, you know, yes, I do think there is a, a bit of a moral hazard problem, but the, re- the government recognizes this. I mean, there are announces there are announcements. I think it was yesterday or a couple of days ago about how JobKeeper is is you know going to be ending in September, and we are in fact recognizing we can't save every business, we can't save every uh, every job, and you know, sure, a currency issuer can print as much currency as it wants, but I, I'm hearing signals that the government is at least aware of the responsibility that comes with that ability, with that power, and um, and I'm certainly hopeful that we're not going to see a situation like we did in the 70s, you know, stagflation is the sort of the specter that I worry about the most, I think, because we've, you know, we've sort of got some of the same ingredients, but, and I don't think that we're really yet anywhere near the the more uh, sort of common example that you hear in this area, which is of South American countries that were just, you know, printing money to, to pay off their debt. I don't think we're close to that. We have a lot more confidence, a lot more sovereign sovereign confidence than we than they ever did. So, so yeah, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't worry about debt per se, really, in a, in a crisis moment, but I think in terms of sustainability, we definitely definitely need to get out of this sort of, you know, heavy-handed government intervention. And I think we will emerge from that. There's going to be some serious adjustment costs, so. Yeah, look, a, a little bit of inflation would be helpful here, you know, a couple of percent or whatever. But um, what, Can I ask you, what is your theory on this weird world we've been in for, say, the past decade? Um, uh, with pe- People have all sorts of theories on it, but, but, but where the inflation has gone. Um, yeah. Um, look, I mean, I think it's something that happens when you uh, get a very mature economy and when, you know, people sort of, they, they have much more stable expectations. There's not as much, I suppose, animal spirits that sort of go one way or the other, right? Not as much volatility in those spirits. And that, that tends to just tamp down, you know, inflation generally. And I think you're right. You want maybe a percentage point or two, but um, that's okay. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I'd be much more concerned about unemployment, you know, of not of basically not non-capacity utilization. Anything about, you know, whether it's labor or capital, measures that say that we're not utilizing capacity, that's a real concern, right? Because that's really about your, whether your economy is healthy, whether you're soaking up all the stuff you've got to use and you're making things and services from that stuff. Whether, you know, what the rate of inflation is, unless it's negative, when you get a serious problem, right? Um, But if you've got a a point or two, I think that's fine. And I'm not really worried about it. It's something we've seen in other countries as well. Yeah, uh, it certainly has been interesting. That that last thing I think that you mentioned earlier that um, we might talk U- about UBI, but um, we're we're nearly out of time. But I do I, I just think it's such an interesting area. Uh, MMT again, you know, I said last week we are going to cover this in detail in in a, in a future episode in in the near future. But UBI is another one of those sort of interesting innovation innovative suggestions uh, that people have had around, uh, and we actually had a brief conversation about UBIs at the end of the show last week um, after after the show uh, and about MMT. Just this whole idea that you know that the, that the safety net has expanded um, and that maybe you might be willing to take a bit more risk. Mm-hmm. So, sure, and that would be the positive out of, of a UBI if we were to ever get one, which I'm not expecting in Australia. Um, of course, the negative is that moral hazard that you pointed to before, right? No incentive to work. So, oh, I'll just sit back and have a cigar or whatever and not actually contribute my labor to the economy. So that's capacity utilization. That's the problem. If people, in fact, all you know, decide to follow their dreams and you know, contribute labor in exactly the industry they wanted to all along, but they were forced to do this other thing because of the capitalist system, eh, fine. 
better allocation of labor as long as people are contributing, right? But that's the concern is that they won't contribute. And of course, the other concern is it's just incredibly expensive and it's the same for everybody. What we have at the moment is targeted tax and transfers, right? We target the taxation system and we target the transfer system. We do it because people are different, not just across you know, the population in any given slice, but also over time. People have different moments of, of crisis in their lives, you know? And when, you, when they have crisis or when they are a person who needs help, we want to be able to give them the help that they need rather than cutting the same check for you know Tom, Dick, and Harry and also Gina Reinhardt, which is a, would be a regressive change compared to what oh, we have at the Gina. moment. Oh, Gina. Every time, every, time, every time her name is mentioned on a podcast, an angel gets its wings. Fantastic. <laughs> 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 okay, um, you've been listening to the BIP show, uh, Business Investing Policy, uh, with me, Paul Colgan in Sydney, and James William. James, good chat. Yep, good chat. Now the trivia is, as yeah, uh, uh, alluded to it, for the schnitzel and the pint of beer, uh, courtesy of the BIP show ballpark. Please don't answer this. This yeah. is actually for the, for the listeners to, oh, right, to answer because okay. they've tuned in for the entire time. Uh, give me a ballpark figure from the CDC of more or less how many million people died from the Spanish flu. And I never used to call it the Spanish flu. It was just the, the influenza Epidemic, like and now everyone's calling it the Spanish flu. I know I didn't used to call it that, but everyone does. Anyway, so to the nearest to the nearest million ballpark figure, come back and I'll buy your schnitz. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been a great day. That's <laughs> been a great day. Uh, Ken, uh, enjoy the day day in Amsterdam. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And Gigi, thank you very much. I really, really learned a lot and uh, enjoyed that chat. My pleasure. Me too. Thanks very much. Yeah. Um, so our guest, uh, Gigi Foster, um, Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales. Uh, Gigi, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a really fascinating, great chat. Uh, and I'm sure we'll have you back again uh, sometime soon. Thanks for having me, Paul. You can find us uh, on iTunes, where you can subscribe, rate, leave us, leave us a review, uh, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all the other places you get your podcasts. Uh, we're also on Facebook uh, at The Bip Show, and you can find us on Twitter at, at the underscore bip underscore show. Uh, at Colgo for me, at Ken Vexler, and at James Whelan42. Uh, you can find us all on there. Um, uh, ping us a line, and we can have a chat. The show is produced by Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter. Catch you next time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 